Bibles, please, would you turn with me to the Old Testament prophet of Joel, Joel and chapter 3. I'll give you just a minute to find it. It's one of those minor prophets, uh, but thankfully it's at the beginning of the, of the books of the minor prophets. So if you're trying to find it, find the big books, Ezekiel, and then go to Daniel and Hosea, and then Joel comes straight after there. Joel chapter 3. And we're reading tonight right at the end of this book, verses 17 to 25. And just a a quick outline of the book of Joel. Joel was a prophet who lived uh, in the late 9th century before Christ, something around 835 BC. Uh, We think he was in the reign of King Joash. Now, the reasons for us thinking this is that in the book of Joel, Joel doesn't mention the name of a king. And nearly all the prophets say that their prophecies were in the days of Hezekiah or uh, whichever king it was. Uh, But Joel doesn't mention which king it is. And so they think that it was in the reign when Joash was a little baby hidden away and Queen Athaliah, the wicked queen, had stolen the throne temporarily. And uh, Joel was writing his prophecy uh, in those days. His name means the Lord is God, the same as the, the prophet Elijah the Lord, he is God. And he has a very strong and clear message that comes all the way through, and that is that the day of the Lord is coming, and therefore we need to repent. Repent is his call uh, in the middle of this book, calling people to repent. And each chapter brings us a, a prophecy warning of an invasion that's coming. Chapter 1 warns of an invasion of locust coming into the Middle East. And that was one of the judgments of God prophesied on the land of Israel if the people went astray from God uh, in the covenant that God gave Moses. Chapter 2, there's a strange prophecy that doesn't make sense until you get to the book of Revelation. Revelation 9 interprets it for you. And you find there's another invasion coming, but it's, it's demonic beings. That's the only way to describe it in Revelation chapter 9. And that's a prophecy that will be in the day of the Lord, in the tribulation period. And the final prophecy is a prophecy of armies coming, normal armies coming uh, uh, to Jerusalem. So you have a prophecy of locusts, which will devour the vegetation, demons, which will hurt the people, and armies, which will invade the land. And Joel says these invasions are going to happen over the course of time. Therefore, mankind and the Jewish people especially need to repent. It's a book of judgment, but it ends on a note of joy. And that's what we're going to read tonight as we look together at Joel chapter 3, verses 17 to 21. And Joel says this prophetically with the Lord speaking through his lips. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no aliens shall ever pass through her again. And it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, And all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Acacias. Egypt shall be a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness because of violence against the people of Judah. For they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall abide forever and Jerusalem from generation to generation. 
for I will acquit them of the guilt of bloodshed whom I had not acquitted, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Praise his name. Uh, James Garfield was a young man who came from Ohio in America and he left his mother's farm uh, after his father died, left her to manage the farm and he decided to go and work on a canal boat and he was uh, an apprentice on a canal boat going up and down uh, carrying cargo and he wasn't very good at it, he kept falling in the canal, (laughs) he kept slipping off the edge of the boat and since he couldn't swim that was quite serious but thankfully every time he fell in the sailors were there and uh, or the boatmen were there and they rescued him. However, one dark and stormy night, he alone was out on the boat and all the other sailors were inside the ship, inside the canal boat. And guess what happened? He slipped and he fell into the water. Frantically, with the rain pouring around him, he flapped and flashed his arms around uh, as he felt himself in a panic with the water coming up around his head and he felt his hand catch something. It was a rope. And he held onto the rope and he pulled himself by all the strength with all that wet clothing on him, pulled himself back up onto the the boat and uh, fell in a heap and was so grateful to be alive. And he looked around and no one had thrown the rope, but the rope was there on the deck. And he remembered he had been reeling up a rope before he had fallen in. But this rope hadn't been attached to anything. He had been rolling it. It it wasn't attached to a master or anything like that. It was just loose. And when he looked down, this rope had miraculously, and that's the only word you could use it, snagged itself on a crack in the floorboards of the boat. And by that means, he had been saved. And when James Garfield saw that, he realised providence as they called it in the olden days the mercy of God in the plans of history had saved his life and he said God I'm not meant to be here on this boat I need to go back home to my mother's farm study hard and follow your plan for my life which he did and he became the president of the United States (laughs) well that man could go forward in life because he realized after that incident God had a plan for his life and that helped him uh, to go back to the difficulties that he had to face well something like that is what Joel wants the people of Israel to get from this passage of scripture as I said in my introduction Joel is prophesying many judgments that are going to come on the land of Israel over the years of time but he wants them to be driven by the fact that God has a plan for them for the future and to hold on to that plan and that plan centers in the kingdom of our God the messianic kingdom of the Messiah here on earth and this is what we as Christians believe as well as the Jewish people the difference is we understand the full part of the story from the New Testament as well and the Lord Jesus through his teaching in the New Testament has shown us the plan of the future and where the kingdom fits in 
Basically, the Bible shows us that the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to die on the cross for our sins so we could be forgiven and made right by God. His death on the cross was a substitutionary death. And today, the message of his death and how it can save people is going out around the world. We're in the era of the church, the gospel dispensation uh, in the history of time. And time is moving forward. But don't think time isn't going anywhere. It is. It's going towards a definite uh, thing. It's heading towards a time of great judgment on the earth, a time called the tribulation or the day of the Lord, the period that Joel spoke about and the book of Zephaniah especially speaks about as well. A seven-year period of time when God's judgments in the most shocking ways are going to be known on the earth. But thankfully, the Lord Jesus has said, and, and 1 Thessalonians 1.10 tells us that Christ is going to come to save us from the wrath to come. And we believe that means he's going to come in the air, as he said, he's going to come back in the air and take his people to be with him in heaven, what we sometimes call the rapture. So for those of us who are trusting in the Lord, we have the hope of his coming ahead of us, not the hope of judgment to come. And we've been saved for that, says the book of Thessalonians. Then at the end of that seven year period of time, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back to earth, the first time he comes in the air for his church, the second time he comes back to the earth with his church at the second coming, as we read in the book of Revelation. And at that time, he's going to defeat the enemies of Israel, the Antichrist and so on. And he is going to set up his kingdom on the earth for a thousand years, what we call the millennium because of the word thousand or the the messianic kingdom, the thousand year kingdom. And uh, then after that, we come to the day of judgment and uh, the, the, the heavens, uh, the new heavens and the new earth. But that's the basic plan that we see in scripture for the future. And where Joel's prophecy here of these blessings that are going to come to Israel in the kingdom come in, they come in that last part on my pictogram there of the kingdom, the thousand year kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's going to be when the nation of Israel comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour. You know, this is a wonderful thing. The Bible says Israel is going to be born in a day. And there's going to be a great turning to the Lord Jesus Christ one day uh, at the end of the tribulation. And Joel speaks about this. If you look in verse 17, he says, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God. You know, that is uh, the new covenant that Jesus prophesied his death would be the seal of, and uh, which Jeremiah prophesied. And in that prophecy, he said, None of them shall say you shall know the Lord, for each one of them shall know me personally. And this is when this will be fulfilled, when Israel knows that the Lord is her God and that the Lord Jesus is her Messiah and Saviour. And so when that happens, Israel will come into great, great blessings. You know, the the hymn writer, and we're going to sing this hymn at the end, Isaac Watts hymn, Jesus shall reign wherever the sun has that beautiful line in it, blessings abound wherever he reigns. That's true. There's going to be blessings on the earth for the nation of Israel in that day. But you say, well, John, that's great for Israel, but I'm not a Jew. So why are we studying this tonight? And I'll tell you why. Because not only is it important for us as Christians to know what the Bible predicts, but what it depicts as well. 
You see, prophecy has a personal application for us as well. This is not just curiosity about the future. It's practical for us today. Because you see, when we become a Christian, Christ becomes king in our hearts as well. And we can count our blessings and name them one by one with this passage of scripture as well. As we see these things have a parallel for us spiritually. So let's learn tonight what this predicts and what it depicts for us as well. So the blessings for Israel in the kingdom are going to be these. First of all, there's going to be the sanctification of Jerusalem, the capital. In verse 17, again, if you just come back to that part of the text, it says, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no aliens shall ever pass through her again. The great English statesman and uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli, himself a Jew, said this, The view of Jerusalem is the history of the world. In fact, it is more. It is the history of earth and heaven. And he was quite right. Jerusalem is a city which has close links with both earth and heaven because that's where God's plans have been worked out in the years. That's where the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross at a hill outside the city walls called Golgotha. And he paid for your sins and mine. That's where the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead three days later at Jerusalem. That's where the disciples were gathered for the day of Pentecost, which Joel also prophesied in Jerusalem. And the Holy Spirit came and filled the church. And listen carefully. That's where the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back to as well. As Alan reminded us this morning from Zechariah chapter 14, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, which is the mountain just east of Jerusalem, and uh, he shall come back to that place. And he will make Jerusalem his capital in his kingdom. The earth shall be ruled from the city of Jerusalem. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And uh, as it says in the last line of this prophecy, down in verse 21, for the Lord dwells in Zion. That's literally what he's going to do. He's going to live, dwell in Zion on the earth for his thousand year reign. What did the Lord Jesus say? Jerusalem is the city of the great king. It is. It's where he's going to reign from and live from. And in fact, because of that, Jerusalem is going to be given beautiful names. It's going to be called the Lord our Righteousness, Jehovah Sidkenu in Hebrew. And it's going to be called in Ezekiel's prophecy, the last line of Ezekiel, Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is there. What a wonderful thing that's going to be when that is true in the future. And Jerusalem will be sanctified. It'll be sanctified by God's presence, first of all. And he says in verse 17 that the Lord God is going to be dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Uh, And Jerusalem and Zion is his holy mountain mountain. Now we tend not to think of Jerusalem particularly today as being a holy city uh, but it's called the holy city in scripture. Nehemiah is the first one who called it the holy city in Nehemiah chapter 11 and it goes on all the way through to the gospels. Matthew chapter 4 when uh, the devil took the Lord Jesus to the temple to take him up onto the pinnacle of the temple it was told that he took him to the holy city 
And even when the Lord Jesus was crucified, in Matthew 27, it says that he went into the holy city. Alas, in the book of Revelation, it becomes known as the city who is like Sodom and Egypt. And it's called that because that's where the Lord was crucified and because of the sins of the nation. But when the Lord Jesus comes back, it's going to be called Holy Jerusalem again. And it's going to be his presence that is going to sanctify it. And it's going to be an amazing thing. The whole land of Israel is going to be rejuvenated by the acts of God, uh, which are going to be rejuvenating of the land when he comes back at his second coming. And the tribes of Israel are going to gather back to the land of Israel and they're going to have new tribal allotments. And you can read about that in the book of Ezekiel in the last chapters, 46, uh, 47 and 48. And in the middle, you'll see there is a section which is for the holy city. And it's going to be on a mountain. A mountain that isn't there now. But a great mountain is going to rise up. The highest mountain in the world. And uh, on that mountain, the Lord's house is going to be built. And that's where he is going to reign from. Interestingly, the word dwelling here is the word for a tent like the tabernacle. And so initially, there may be some sort of... uh, tabernacle set up initially when he comes back Isaiah chapter 2 and 4 suggest that as well but eventually it's going to be the rebuilt house of the Lord for the dwelling place of the Lord we'll see that again later on in this passage and this mountain is going to be where the Lord's presence is going to dwell from now you might say yeah right sure I'm not so sure on all this mountains appearing out of nowhere business Listen, let me tell you about a man by the name of Frank Franson. He believed in mountains coming out of nowhere. He was sailing in his boat off the coast of Australia going towards Tonga. And as he was sailing across in his boat, he came across what looked like a desert floating on the water. It was pumice stones. Now, that looks like you've come to a shore, doesn't it? But it's not. And he sailed his boat through it until he realised this probably wasn't good for his engine. And he pulled back. And then in the distance, they saw a mountain formed before their eyes as a volcano came up and the smoke came up. You say, I don't believe God can raise a mountain. Well, he did. And he will do it again when the Lord Jesus comes back. And he will shape Jerusalem and build his house on that place. But I want to tell you this. This is what will sanctify Jerusalem when the Lord God reigns from there. And this is what happens to the believer as well. When when we we take Christ to be our saviour and our Lord, he comes to dwell in our hearts by faith, as it says in Ephesians chapter 3. The hymn writer said, take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne Francis Ridley Havergale and that's what Christ does he makes our heart his throne and he reigns from within that's where the sanctification of our life begins when Christ comes and reigns as king within has he done that for you yet has he done that in your life yet have you received Christ as your saviour and lord and sanctified the lord in your heart uh, as your god but also it'll be Uh, sanctified not only by God's presence but by the Gentiles absence because if we look in the last part of verse 17 it goes on then Jerusalem shall be holy and no alien shall ever pass through her again 
by aliens. I know that you're not a children's organisation. A children's group say you're not thinking of, of little green men. We're thinking about Gentiles, foreigners, who are not uh, Jewish people. And you know what a fascinating thing is? If you read the history of the nations of Israel and read about the story of Jerusalem, it is literally like the Bible says of Jerusalem being trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. We read about the Romans conquering Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar conquering Jerusalem, and then we come on later in history and we read about the Muslims conquering Jerusalem, then we read about the Crusaders, then we read about the Ottoman Turks, then we read about the British conquering Jerusalem, then we read about in 1948, it comes back to the Jewish people. But it's not over yet, the, Romans, the book of Revelation tells us in Revelation 11 that they will still trample the holy place uh, until the end. And Jesus said this would continue. But when the Lord comes back, not only will Jerusalem be marked by his presence, but by the Gentiles' absence. That doesn't mean no Gentile will be able to go up and worship the Lord at that time, but it means no Gentile armies are going to pass through her again. And it won't be defiled by their acts of idolatry, which they've tried to enforce in the land of Israel and Jerusalem and it will be holy unto the Lord you know this is a a little preview of what happens to us when Christ comes and makes his throne in our hearts doesn't he throw out every imposter and everything that's wrong and evil when he comes in like when he cleansed the temple doesn't he turn over the the, the sinful things in our hearts and say that's got to go and that's got to go And the things of the Gentiles, the things of the world, have to be put out of our lives that are not right. But by that means, he sanctifies us as well. I want to tell you, it's a great plan that God has for Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to be sanctified. The great city will be set apart to God and its plans will be fulfilled. And God wants to do that for you and me as well. You know, years ago, there was an ever-famous man in America by the name of Thomas Edison. And Thomas Edison, when he was a young boy, uh, and you know Thomas Edison, he was the man who invented the light bulb, didn't he? When he was a young lad, he, uh, he lived in the days of great poverty in America. He had holes in his shoes. He had no overcoat. He walked from one city to another trying to find uh, work. And he was a very poor man before he ended up going back to live in his family home again. But somehow or the other, he managed to scrape enough money together to buy a book by uh, Faraday, Michael Faraday, the English scientist. And the book was called Experimental Researches in Electricity. And it was a two-volume book. It cost him everything. But he looked at that book and he saw what Faraday had achieved by the time he'd reached his 50s. And he said, that's what I've got to do. And he got up at four o'clock in the morning and he started studying this book. And he would study it as soon as he got back from uh, his chores on the farm and and his uh, going to education. He studied it in the evening. And when he was 21, he said to his friend, I have to hustle because I've got so much to get in my short life. And we know he did hustle. We're sat under these electric lights tonight and we're very thankful for them, aren't we? But he had a vision that life was short. There was no time for messing around. I want to say this. Life is short. 
If my life is as short as my father's, I will be dead in 10 years' time. That's all I've got left, if it's as long as that or as short as that. So we don't have time for foolish detours and mistakes. We need to make sure that we make Christ Saviour and Lord of our lives and our hearts are sanctified to him just as Jerusalem will one day be sanctified. If you haven't yet done so, turn to Christ and make him your Saviour and Lord even tonight. Second thing we see here, the blessing that will come to Israel is the supply of resources. Not only the sanctification of Jerusalem, but the supply of resources in verse 18. And it says, and it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine. The hills shall flow with milk and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Acacias. You might remember uh, a few years ago it was the 60th anniversary of the city of Jerusalem and uh, there was great celebrations in Israel. Well, one of the things that was given to Israel by the French people as a token of, uh, of, of a gesture towards them was a famous water fountain, a copy of one that there is in Paris and it's uh, called the Wallace Fountain. And it's set up in uh, the square outside the Prime Minister of Israel's uh, uh, residence where he is. And he sees it every day. A beautiful fountain there in the street for the people to enjoy. Well, do you know what? Water and fluids are often marks of blessing and gifts, uh, even from God in the Bible. And we see here in this passage of scripture that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, he's going to bless the people with a tremendous supply of resources. And there are three liquid resources he's going to give in this passage. He's going to give them wine, he's going to give them milk, and he is going to give them water. Uh, I, I like these three things. They're very interesting, aren't they? Wine, of course, comes from the vine. And therefore, it's a vegetable uh, product, sources vegetable. Milk, of course, comes from a cow, and therefore, it sources animal. And water comes from the, from the ground, and therefore, its source is mineral. So it's uh, interesting how each of these things is going to come from the three basic elements. But these supplies are given in blessing to Israel. And they counteract the judgments of God earlier on in this book. You know, if you go back at the beginning of Joel, you'll see one of the things that was struck was the harvests of the vines. And God said uh, to the people of Israel to wail because there was no wine for the drink offering in the temple. And even the drunkards on the street were wailing because there was no wine for them. And uh, it was a a judgment from God. Hosea tells us uh, the same things in his prophecy of judgment as well. But when the Lord Jesus comes, he's going to abundantly bless them with these resources. And at the end of the tribulation, which is going to be a time when there's going to be great judgment from God on the earth, including on the water sources and things like that, people will be very, very grateful for such a generous blessing. We may not think of it as being so great now because we have an ease of turning on a tap. And even Israel, in the, in the land of Israel today, although they have a very low water, 
waterfall, they are very gifted at converting water from the Mediterranean Sea in a process they call reverse osmosis. And they can make water from the Mediterranean Sea drinkable in 90 minutes. And something like a quarter of their water comes from uh, that process in the land. But in the tribulation, the waters are going to be a part of God's judgment. And therefore, it will seem amazing to them. I might have told you before the story of Eddie Rickenbacker. Uh, I like the name Rickenbacker because Rickenbacker made good guitars and it was one of his relatives. But Eddie Rickenbacker was a, a pilot in, in the Air Force in the war and his plane and his crew ditched into the sea and they were in their dinghy lifeboats for three weeks. No food, no water, just floating on that, on that little dinghy. They survived by, amazingly, a bird landed and they man- on their boat and they managed to catch it and that's where they got their food from and they got the water from the rain. And they said when the rain came, and it didn't come very often, but when it came, they cut their hands and their salt-dried lips. They just drank as much as they could. It meant everything to them. It was the most precious thing. And Eddie Rickenbacker said afterwards, he said, as long as you've got water, you've got no reason to complain on earth. You know what? This is what God is going to bless Israel with. And it's a sign of great blessing. You'll notice the language here depicts great abundance. It says the mountains shall drip with new wine. Uh, it says they will, the hills will flow with milk. And the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. Normally they only uh, go with a trickle. Which you would do if you only had about a foot of water in your annual rainfall, wouldn't you? But they're going to flood, be flooded down the stream. And each of those comes down in elevation from the mountains down to the hills, down to the brooks. And God's plan is to bless from the top to the bottom. And these three great things are going to flow. And you know what? Amazing thing is that this is something which Israel, even today, would be so grateful for, but is, a, is evidence that God is able to give. You know, a fascinating thing has been happening in the land of Israel recently where uh, scientists have been doing work on stalagmites. And I don't know how they do this, but apparently they, well, stalagmites are a little bit like tree trunks and they can tell by the layers in which they're built up about the rainfall in the land from the, the amount of water and the build-up of the stalagmites. And do you know what? In the caves in Israel, they have found the stalagmites were built largely up until about, get this, about the year 70 to 100 AD, which was when Israel was thrown out of the land by the Romans. And then it was parched until... The late 1800s, when the Jewish people started going back to the land, and the two high points were 1948 and 1967. I'm not making that up. That's done by a university study. Isn't that amazing? Now, that's God showing that he can provide the water for the land, and he's going to bless them with that uh, in the future. And you know, there's parallels for us spiritually, aren't there? Because you know, when the Lord becomes our saviour, 
we receive his blessings and his blessings come into our lives. Wine is a picture of joy in the Bible. It's connected with joy in Psalm 4. They shall, they shall celebrate like those who tread out the wine. And the word for wine here is the word in Hebrew, which is for trodden wine. And uh, wine is a picture of joy. The Lord gives us joy. I've got that joy, 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 joy down in my heart, said the old chorus. And that's what we discover when Christ is our Saviour and Lord. We have milk. The milk is nourishment and Christ nourishes us, doesn't he, from his word. And water is life. Water is life. In the Middle East, if you don't have water, you don't have life. But there's going to be life-giving water. In fact, that water is going to flow We're told there, the last part of verse 18, a fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Acacias. Now, I didn't include this on my PowerPoint, but in Ezekiel chapter 47, one of the things we discover is that there's going to be a new river that's going to flow from the land of, in the land of Israel. Not the Jordan, it's going to be a, a river that's going to flow from the house of the Lord. It's going to flow from underneath his throne in the house. And we're told that it comes out of the temple, it goes around the altar, and it comes out on the north side. I like the fact that it says it comes around the altar. Reminds me of the blood and the water that flowed from his side. And it's going to give life to the land of Israel. Read Ezekiel 47 before you go home, or when you get home, and it'll greatly bless you. And you know what? He flows with life into our lives. I didn't plan that Alan was going to speak on, on John 7 this morning, but this is the Old Testament passage that the New Testament Lord Jesus picked up on when he said that if we have him as our saviour, rivers of living water will flow from within our hearts. That's the reality, isn't it? And those blessings are what we come into when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you've not yet come to Christ, you're missing out on the blessings. And you haven't yet come into the blessings of his kingdom in your life, as Israel will when he comes again. Thirdly, we see the third blessing is the suppression of her enemies. And that's what comes out in verses 19 to 20. Because it says, Egypt will be a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness because of violence against the people of Judah. For they have shed innocent blood in their land. Now, one of the things uh, about the Jewish people is that they are surrounded by enemies. And throughout their history is that they have been plagued by false friends and true enemies, haven't they? And two of the oldest enemies are the two E's, Egypt and Eden. And these are the ones who go right back to the book of Genesis and Exodus. Egypt, of course, which held Israel in captivity for 430 years, and Edom, which is where Esau comes from. And uh, these two nations historically have been, uh, in the the Old Testament especially, were great nations that persecuted the children of Israel. Not only when they were uh, in Egypt as as prisoners after Abraham and and Jacob and Joseph uh, all descended down to Egypt, but also when they came into the land, Shishak the king came up and raided the temple and so on. And uh, he was, uh, Josiah was killed by the Egyptians in battle. So Egypt is a historical 
enemy of Israel. And Israel has had her, her tussles with Egypt even in the last hundred years, hasn't she? Think of 1973 uh, and the Yom Kippur War and so on. Well, God is going to judge Egypt uh, for her crimes against the nation of Israel, and especially the fact that they have shed innocent blood, as he says down there at the end of 19. I've got a feeling that refers back to the, the, the death of the babies in Egypt. That's what I, uh, I personally link it to. And uh, God is going to punish Egypt. Now, we don't have time to look at this in detail tonight, but if you want to do some study in this, read Ezekiel 29. Ezekiel gives us the judgments on, Ezekiel, on Egypt and Edom. And uh, in, in Egypt, God is going to dry up the river of Egypt, in, in, even into the kingdom. And for 40 years, Egypt is going to be a nation displaced from that land. Just as the children of Israel were displaced from their land when they were among the Egyptians in the kingdom, Egypt is going to be displaced for 40 years. But praise God, Egypt will be converted. And that's what we read in Isaiah 19 as well, eventually. But Edom is a different story altogether. Egypt shall be a desolate wilderness. And Isaiah 34 tells us it's going to be uh, a terrible place. Uh, we haven't got time to go into it, but a place of God's judgment, uh, even throughout the, the tribulation. Uh, uh, sorry, even throughout the uh, kingdom. It's going to be a, a land which is set aside uh, for, for judgment under the reign of the Lord Jesus because of violence against the people of Judah, as it says there. Now, here's an interesting thing. When you read, read through the Old Testament, you see the devil nearly always used Edom to try and destroy the Jews. Who was it who was fighting with Jacob in the womb? Esau. And his hand caught his brother's heel. Why did it catch his brother's heel? Because in the womb, Esau was trying to kick his brother's head in. And his brother held his hand, held his heel. That's where that name comes from. The devil was trying to kill him, even in the womb. Then you come on and you see Esau uh, is a fiery man who is hostile to his brothers, uh, to his brother, and he instills that in a particular descendant of his called Amalek. And when the children of Israel come up out of Egypt, Amalek, as we've read in Exodus 17, if you read on Exodus 17, you read Amalek came up behind the, the, the children of Israel as they came up out of Egypt and tried to kill them as they were coming out of the land, but God rescued them. And then you come to the story of David. And you read, David was fleeing from Saul. And he would have made it. But a wicked man by the name of Dueg the Edomite tried to kill David and, and told Saul uh, about where they were. And he slew the priests. And also in the book of Samuel, we read about a man called Agag, the Amalekite. Now that doesn't mean too much until you come to the book of Esther and you read Haman was an Agagite who tried to kill the Jews. And an Agagite is an Amalekite, is an Edomite. And so in the days of Esther, they tried to kill the Jews. Then you come into the New Testament and you have a wicked king that we always talk about every year at Christmas, Herod the Great, who tried to kill the baby Jesus 
He was an Edomian, an Edomite. And his descendants killed John the Baptist. And his descendant tried to kill the Apostle Paul, or was at least instrumental in um, Paul's trial in the book of Acts. And you say, well, it surely stops there. Well, does it? Does it? Bible prophecy might be suggesting otherwise, because we see Edom is a land of wickedness, even in Bible prophecy. And in Revelation chapter 12, we see a great red dragon, which is trying to destroy Israel and the, the, the woman who gave birth to the child. Red in the Bible is the color of Edom. You remember, he was a man of hairy skin, and he said, give me some of that red, that pottage. Is the Antichrist going to be linked to Edom? Possibly. Possibly. But it looks that all the way to the end, this nation is going to be violent against the Jewish people for Christ's sake. Well, listen, when Jesus comes back, the Lord is going to make Edom a desolate wilderness. And in verse 19, he will judge them because of violence against the people of Judah. Interestingly, the word violence, there's the word Hamas, which is interesting, isn't it? And in contrast to that, verse 20, but Judah shall abide forever and Jerusalem from generation to generation. The Edomites have tried to destroy Israel, but actually they're going to be the ones who are going to end up being destroyed and Jerusalem will continue forever and Judah as well. So the Lord is going to suppress her enemies when he comes. Well, you say, never mind about Egypt and Edom. What about my enemies? What about the enemies in my heart? Listen, when Christ becomes your king, he can suppress your enemies too. And what does the Bible say in 1 Corinthians 15? It tells us that when Christ has conquered the kingdom, he will give up, defeat the last enemy which is death itself. Death itself, our greatest enemy. And we will be uh, able to go to heaven to be with him forever. So good news on the horizon for Israel and for us, if we know Christ as Saviour and Lord. He will suppress even our greatest enemies. Finally, the salvation from their sins. And this greatest blessing of all is kept to the end of this book of Joel in this very last verse and it says in verse 21 for I will acquit them of their guilt of the guilt of bloodshed whom I had not acquitted for the Lord dwells in Zion the last blessing that is mentioned is the one that is the most important and that is the forgiveness of sins. Now, I ought to give a, a warning here. Not every Bible translation translates this verse the same way. Uh, the version I've used here tonight says, I will acquit them of the guilt. Uh, uh, another version says, I will avenge them of the guilt, meaning uh, I'll avenge the blood of the Jewish people on others. That is taken from what we call the Septuagint. It's not taken from the Hebrew. The version we're using tonight seems to be the one that has the most weight for what the Hebrew originally said. And it says here, I will acquit them. I will, I will vindicate them. I will justify them of the guilt of bloodshed. Now, what bloodshed is this he's talking about? Well, I believe ultimately the bloodshed that concerns God more than any other is the blood of his son, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember when the great, the great mob stood before Pilate's uh, 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 throne and pavement and they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. His blood be on our heads and on our children. What an awful thing they cried that day. Terrible. And God has put it on their, on their heads. I think that's why they've suffered over the years. Till they realise that. And Hosea says that God will go away until they acknowledge their sins. There's no good Christians going around, oh, you mustn't say Israel's done any wrong. Israel has done wrong. I tell you now, if Jeremiah the prophet was raised from the dead and was to preach in the land of Israel tonight, what would he say to Israel? Oh, you've done nothing wrong. Oh no, Jeremiah would come and say, repent people, repent of what you've done. This is what the Apostle Paul said. It's what he said in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, that Israel was guilty of the death of the Messiah. What Peter said to the Sanhedrin, you murdered him. And their nation was guilty. Now we're not saying we're not saying that we should stir up hatred against the Jews and go out saying they're Christ killers and go and persecute them like people did in medieval times. We're not saying that. But we have no right to say that the Jewish people were not guilty of rejecting their their son, their saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the same way that Joseph's brothers rejected Joseph and tried to kill him. It's what the Bible says. And they need to be forgiven, as do all people need to be forgiven. And the great news is this. The last blessing God lists here is the justification, the acquitting of the guilt of bloodshed, who he had not acquitted until that time. Because at that time, they will repent. Do you know, each one of us needs to repent. We need to ask the Lord to forgive us our sins. Can you honestly say tonight, you do not need to be forgiven? We all do. And salvation is on offer for each one of us, if we will take it. Many years ago, there was a a beloved doctor by the name of Dr. Walter Wilson. He was a great preacher, but he was a physician, so he was known as the beloved physician. And he wrote a book called Just What the Doctor Ordered. And it was his notes from his sermons and his experiences. In the, sto- in the book, he tells the story how one occasion he was addressing a large congregation of people and he wanted to speak to them language they could understand. And he said, I want you to imagine you've got a deadly illness and I've got here the only medicine that will cure you. Will it do you any good? And just like you now, the whole congregation sat quiet apart from one little boy at the back, who said, no. And he said, that's right. Why will it not do you any good? And the boy said, it won't do you any good unless you take it. And that's exactly right. That's the point the doctor was going to make. This medicine will do you no good left on the shelf, even if it's been provided. You have to take it. And each one of us has to repent of our sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and ask him to save us. And the Bible tells us if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. What great blessings will come to Israel, what blessings 
can come to us as well if we make Christ our saviour and our king. If you've not yet done so, as I've already said, turn to the Lord even tonight. And let's look forward to that great day when we will rejoice with Israel in their salvation.